Welcome to the 34 Circe Salon. We journey from the ancient world to the cosmos. Take the adventure, Take with, the adventure us. with us. With us. With us. With us. With us. With us. And welcome, everyone, to the 34 Circe Salon. This is the Parallax channel, and we are doing Classical Studies 101. We're at the very end, the very end of the Odyssey. It has been incredible. And um, an absolute majestic work, uh, on something that everyone should read and should uh, explore and learn about. And we're going to go through our last chapter of it today. As always, if you would be so kind as to leave a lovely message or a nice rating on whatever podcast platform you are using to listen to this, it would be much appreciated. And now, without further ado, let us welcome our guide, the uh, gentleman who has guided us throughout this entire odyssey, the one, the only, Dr. Gary Stickle. Welcome, Gary. Hi. Great to be back. Gary, we're at the end of our journey. Um, we'll save to the end a little bit of discussion just about the, the whole piece, but um, why don't we just get right to it? Uh, where are we in this uh, at this point? Where And now we're at the last chapter. What has occurred uh, just prior to this and then lead us into this last moments? Well, as we said in the last uh, podcast, uh, chapter 23, um, Odysseus finally reunites with his beautiful wife and queen Penelope. Very emotional chapter. Um, and it was called the Great Rooted Bed because he made a bed out of a uh, part of the bed, like the bedstead, I think it was, was made out of a, the trunk of a olive tree. And that was uh, figured in the story because... Uh, <clears throat> Homer keeps having uh, Odysseus having to prove himself to people. <laughs> yes, and he had to prove yes. himself to Penelope. And when she said, well, I'll, I'll move uh, our bed out, outside for you. And, and he got upset with her. He said, you know, I can't move the bed because I made it out of a, you know, basically the trunk of an olive tree. It can't be moved. And with yeah. that, she knew that it was Odysseus and she embraces him and kisses him and, you know, they reunite. And it's interesting, too. One, his reaction is very naturally upset that she'd even ask him. Uh, he's waited so long to be with her and wants, of course, for her to immediately know who he is. But you're right. He does have to prove himself and show himself. He's put in disguise. And it's been 20 years. I mean, I'm sure he looks or he looked very much as he, you know, he he's recognizable as possibly being a Odysseus, but that's a long time in, a, in an age where, unlike today, where you would have a, a picture of some sort. I mean, it's possible they could have had a portrait, but it's not likely in that era people weren't doing portraitures. But no. today we have, we have photos and all kinds of things to keep the memory fresh of what the person looked like. You have right. to now remember over a 20-year expanse, think of someone that you know whose picture you haven't seen. Maybe it's somebody you knew in college. 
uh, and you haven't seen that person, you haven't seen a picture of that person, at least certainly from then, in 20 years. And then the person shows up and says, hey, I am this guy, or she shows up and says, hey, I am this lady. Um, so that's kind of what you're dealing with. So it's, it's interesting to think about. We're so used to having a frame of reference for long periods of time that we can look at pictures of people, but that would not have been the case then. Right. So now we have that scene, they're, they're reunited. Where are we now? Okay, well, this <clears throat> is the last chapter. And uh, some scholars have said that uh, it really uh, wasn't where Homer uh, ended the story. Some scholars believe he ended it uh, with the, you know, the, the reuniting of uh, Odysseus and Penelope. But that's an, that's, they, that's an interesting think, statement. Okay. Yeah, because what happens in it isn't, isn't essential or isn't as uh, impactful as, as the previous chapter. I thought the same thing. I thought it was an, an unusual place to end a more dramatic ending would have been last chapter that would yeah. have been a really great ending so what's the thought uh, this was just added on well, it's, oral it's my, thought, my thought uh is that they added a chapter to make it 24 chapters or books i think there were scrolls you know mm -hmm. and and 24 is twice the sacred number 12 i think that's why it was done i can't prove that but that's what i think and it, you know, and in, we know from the modern world and from down through the ages, whenever there is greatness, there is always someone or some group of people who want to attach themselves to that greatness and want to gild the lily, right? They want it yeah. to seem as, oh, this was great, but look what I did. I added this chapter and it just made it, you know, we talk about that when we watch the Hollywood remakes or retellings of Greek myths and Greek stories. Um, where they really, instead of just taking the, the, the majestic work itself, they decide they can, quote unquote, better it by adding this or removing that. Usually right. it's the gods and goddesses like we talk about. So right. uh, certainly believable. Okay. So th this chapter, uh, you know, I'm using, uh, I keep saying a Robert Fagel's translation. It's very readable. Um, <clears throat> he, he labels... This chapter, peace, but you know, I think the peace was achieved in the previous chapter, but that's what he uh, labels it. And uh, so, the first part, there, there's actually two parts to the chapter, which I'll explain. And the first part is involving the um, uh, Hermes, who's the messenger god of the Greeks. And Sean, what did the Romans call him? Mercury. Mercury. Uh, was, that, also, was, that was that a Jeopardy question for me? No, it's yeah, a Roman question. We're yeah, going to get yeah, into yeah. the Romans. We won't tell the listener, but we're going to get into the Roman world very soon. Okay. Yeah. And so, uh, but he also uh, would lead people who died down to the underworld where the Greeks believe the dead people go, the kingdom of the dead. So it starts off with um, Hermes leading away the ghosts of the suitors. You know, the 107 suitors that Odysseus and his son and, and two loyal servants killed in the palace. Did you say 107? 
Yeah, I think it's it's um, 108. 108. I'm sorry, 108. It's a product of uh, nine and 12. 12, I guess. right? Nine and 12. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, okay. a, it's a sacred number in a lot of places. Exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. So anyhow, this is the way it starts off. Now, Selenian Hermes called away the suitor's ghost, holding firm in his hand the wand of fine pure gold. Now, this wand is, is called the caduceus. And we see it everywhere today with the medical profession. Yeah, I think we talked about that, that, that you were saying that it was an unusual connection to, to have to the medical profession. Yeah, because it, it has to do with Hermes, not with medicine. Mm-hmm. And uh, now the god of medicine was Asclepius in Greek mythology. And he had a, a single wand with one serpent entwined on it, whereas the Caduceus has two serpents entwined on it and usually depicted with little wings at the top and a, uh, a ball at the top of the, of the wand. Um, it has nothing to do with, uh, you know, medicine or curing or whatever. Right. Um, so he's holding firm in his hand the wand of fine pure gold that enchants the eyes of men whenever Hermes wants uh, or wakes us up from sleep. In other words, he can cause you to go to sleep with his wand. I wish I had the wand that make me fall asleep at night. A, a lot of us do, exactly. Yeah. With a wave of this, he stirred and led them on, you know, the ghost of the, of the suitors. And, they, uh, and the ghost trailed after him, making high thin cries, as bats cry in the depths of dark haunted caverns. And uh, which I thought was an interesting reference. Um, Hermes, a healer, he's called that, but he's not really a healer, uh, leads him on down the dank moldering pass. Um, in other words, he's leading him past the white rock and the sun's western gates and past the land of dreams, and soon they reach the fields of Asphodel, where the dead, the burnout race of mortals, make their home. So in other words, that's part of what uh, the overall kingdom of the dead is called Hades, and the king of the dead is called Hades too. Right. So that's where he leads them. Mm-hmm. And there um, he encounters uh, the ghost of Achilles, Patroclus, you know, the best uh, warrior friend, lover, whatever, of uh, Achilles. Antilochus and great Ajax. He was, you know, it was a huge warrior, second only to Achilles in in, uh, ability to fight. Um, They had grouped around Achilles' ghost, and now the shade, you know. Homer refers to ghosts as shades. Mm-hmm. which is interesting. Um, the shade of Agamemnon marches towards them, fraught with grief, flanked by his comrades, his men-at-arms. And Achilles' ghost greets him. Agamemnon, you were the one. We thought of all our fighting princes, Zeus, who loves the lightning, favored most, because you commanded such a powerful host of men on the fields of Troy where the Achaeans or Greeks suffered. But you were doomed to encounter fate so early. Uh, Agamemnon made it back to Greece, but he was uh, 
killed by his wife and his uh, wife's lover. And he himself had killed um, his daughter, correct? Yeah. And that was a horrible, tragic in order to sail to Troy, that's what the, right. the God has forced him to do, and he did it. Mm-hmm. And the wife never forgave him, so that was her enacting revenge, you know? Um, and the ghost of Agamemnon answered, Son of Peleus, great godlike Achilles, happy man, you died on the fields of Troy. And the best of the Trojan and, and Argive Greek champions died around you, fighting for your corpse. And then it goes on to say how they buried Achilles. And uh, so they, they, we laid you on the litter, cleansed your handsome flesh with warm water and soothing oils around your body. Troops of the Greeks wept hot tears and cut their locks, cut their hair, which is interesting. Um, and then your mother, Cetus, she's a goddess, rose from the sea. And then she comes and she creates terror among the uh, the Greeks. And um, and then Nestor speaks up, old King Nestor, who uh, survived the war of Troy. And uh, he's the first in council and so on. And he tries to calm the Greeks. And... Uh, He's talking about how the the muses, nine and all, voice their choir. You know, they they, they sing for uh, Achilles. You know, this is trying to depict a grand burial for Achilles. You know, we uh, for the listener, we talk about the muses. You're going to hear a lot about them coming up when we um, when you uh, hear some of our episodes on, uh, films that involve the nine muses. So anyway, we're just putting that out there for you. And nine is a sacred number, by the way. Um, so they, uh, they had, they mourned Achilles and had uh, funeral rites for 17 days. We mourned you on the 18th dawn. We gave you to the flames. In other words, they cremated him. And they sacrifice sheep and cattle as part of the uh, burial ceremony. And he said there's a long cortege of heroes, men in chariots, men on foot. Um, and he says the god of fire, Hephaestus, um, burned your corpse to ash. At uh, at first light, we gathered your white bones, Achilles, cured them in strong wine and seasoned oils. Your mother gave us a, a gold two-handled urn, a gift from Dionysus, another god, Greek god. But it was made by the famous uh, god, the god of fire, Hephaestus. And, um, John, do you remember what the Romans called Hephaestus, god of fire? Are we talking about Vulcan? Yes, Vulcan. We'll, we'll continue. Be, we'll, we'll talk about this this uh, and section. Vulcan is supposed to inhabit the volcano Mount Etna in Sicily. And also flies in the Starship Enterprise. Just yeah. kidding. Anyway. Yeah, right. Um, and it says, over your bones we reared 
uh, erected a grand noble tomb. It, it was a mound high on a jutting headland over the Hellespont. So they buried him near Troy. And the Hellespont was the uh, Greek name. The uh, Turks call it the Bosporus today. It's a waterway between the Aegean Sea and the Black Sea. It's a really key, to, throughout history, it's a key location, just for the listener. It comes yeah. up uh, on our other podcast called Make Matriarchy Great Again when we talk about the, the development of women in the Black Sea region and matriarchies and Amazons and warrior women, but it's also there just throughout the history of, of the West. So, Yeah, so it just goes on and... And then uh, it says, your name will never die. I mean, Achilles, great glory is yours, Achilles, for all time in the eyes of mankind. And then it says, Hermes, the guide and giant killer, drew up close to both, leading down the ghost of the suitors, King Odysseus killed. In other words, he takes him down into the dark world, Hades. So anyhow, that's uh, you know how the chapter begins. It's a it's an odd again. We talk about things being tacked on. It's an odd thing to put there, unless you're someone who wants to wrap up neatly in a bow the Iliad and the Odyssey and tie them together, because it's you know it's and, again the kind of thing somebody else would add to another person's work, but that's just my opinion. And then one of the ghosts of the suitors. Uh, Amphimedon, um, you know, talks about, uh, you know, what, what happened. He said, we were courting the wife of Odysseus, gone so long. She neither spurned nor embraced the marriage. She despised. She simply planned our death, our black doom. This was her latest masterpiece of guile. So he talks about um, her loom that she... Uh, held off the suitors saying that once she finished a shroud for her father-in-law, Laertes, the father of Odysseus, uh, she would marry one of them. And so uh, the chapter relates how, or he relates how she would weave in the daytime and at nighttime, sneak into the weaving room and unravel what she had woven in the daytime. So she never would finish it. And, um, her very words, and despite our pride and passion, we believed her. So by day she would weave at the great and growing web, by night, by the light of torches, she would unravel all she'd done. Three whole years she deceived us blind, seduced us with the scheme. Anyhow, as um, I mentioned to you before, there's a song by the pop singer star uh, Pink uh, called Who Knew? And it sounds just like this. He's talking about suitors wanting to be, you know, have a relationship with her, and she's waiting for her lover, who's been gone three years. I remember you mentioning that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a good song, by the way. I understand Pink really liked this song. Okay. Um, And the first part of the chapter, by the way, it's interesting because they talk about uh, uh, Odysseus having a heart of iron and so on. First half of the chapter uses iron, the second half bronze. I thought that was interesting um, because 
the story took place in the Bronze Age, but Homer was writing about it in the Iron Age. Mm-hmm. So I think he got a little confused on that. Or whomever, right. Yeah, right. And um, so then the narrator is talking about um, Penelope's latest um, test of the suitor, saying that she would marry one of them after they had strung the great bow of Odysseus and shot an arrow through, get this, 12 axes, again, the number 12. And uh, he, um, it's translated that he had uh, gleaming iron axes. And it mentions the great bow of Odysseus. And, and, and the suitors tried to string the bow, but none of them could string it. I think the bow was supposed to be, you know, supernatural, so only Odysseus could string it and shoot it. That's what it seemed like, yeah. So it says, not one of us had the strength to string the powerful uh, bow. But when the bow came to Odysseus' hands, we raised a hue and cry. He must not have it. Long-suffering great Odysseus strung the bow with ease and shot through all the axes. Then vaulting onto the threshold, stood there poised, pouring his flashing arrows. Glaring for the kill. He cut uh, Antinous down. Antinous was the leader of the suitors and the most obnoxious. So he is the first to die, you know. Um, and uh, and then he starts to kill the rest of them. And then he's helped by his son Telemachus and two loyal servants. And the suitors are running around trying to save themselves and whatever. Some of them have weapons, you know. And it says the grisly screams broke from skulls cracked open, the whole floor washed with blood. So it's pretty graphic in here. Um, so anyhow, goes on, Happy Odysseus, Agamemnon's ghost cried out, Son of Laertes, what a fine, faithful wife you won. And then he, he praises Penelope. The fame of her great virtue will never die. The immortal gods will lift a song for all mankind, a glorious song in praise of self-possessed Penelope. A far cry, the daughter of Tyndareus, Clytemestra. Now she's the one that killed Agamemnon. Killing the man she married once, you know, meaning Agamemnon. Mm -hmm. So they traded stories. And then the chapter switches to another scene altogether. It switches to Odysseus, who, uh, I guess, you know, uh, after he reunited with Penelope to uh, to his heart's content, uh, he goes to uh, meet up with his father. And so, so Odysseus and his men have uh, striding down from the town and quickly reached Laertes' large, well-tended farm. So Laertes is the father of Odysseus. I don't know why he's not still king. You know, somehow Odysseus became king, and Laertes, you know, uh, what do you call it? Um, stepped Abigail. down from kingship and, and let Odysseus yeah. be the king. Yeah, I mean, it's and clearly he did it before the Trojan War began, because yeah. he was a king at that point. Yeah, Odysseus so. was king when he left, yes. Uh, what, what do you call that when you step down from king? Uh, there's a abdication. Term. You abdicate. Abdication. Yeah. Thank you. Um, 
So then it goes on to describe uh, Laertes' uh, house, the lodge it's referred to, and a uh, row of sheds and field hands, and talking about he has vineyards and uh, orchards and so on. Um, and so Lana during the dishes catches sight of his father who's out tending the fields. And um, so he goes up to him, and then this is repeated throughout the uh, Iliad, where Odysseus pretends he's somebody else and from somewhere else. I thought that was weird in this particular Yeah, it's case. weird. You just, it's your dad. There's your dad, finally. Hey. Yeah, why, why not just like, embrace him? Yeah. Why, why, why play games? But he plays the game on. Well. Yeah. And he claims that he's, um, you know, he says, is this Ithaca? I don't know if this is the Ithaca. I'm trying to get the Ithaca and so on. Um, and so he has this uh, whole thing, and he talks about how he met Odysseus. He claims he met Odysseus and gave him seven bars of gold, seven being the sacred number, uh, a mixing bowl of solid silver. And here's the number 12 again, a dozen cloaks, a dozen rugs for some reason, uh, as many full cut capes and, and shirts as well. So 12 capes and 12 shirts. And then get this, it's a male chauvinistic society and four women, perfect beauties. That's what he said he gave. Yeah, okay. That's, yeah. He, Very, gave, he claimed he gave Odysseus, you know, uh, four women. Very patriarchal, and, uh, and and yeah. and again, in light of Odysseus being, you know, enraged of all the suitors with Penelope, but he gets four women, you know, according right. to the the tale. And so, anyhow, uh, Laertes responds to him, and uh, he says, "The land you reach is the very one you're after," meaning, uh, you know, Ithaca in the grip of reckless lawless men. So he still thinks the suitors are, uh, have cap, you know, are, uh, have captured the palace, you know, invaded the palace. He doesn't know that they've been killed. Um, and he talks about his son and he said, there was a son or was it all a dream? You know, uh, that reference is used more than once because Penelope uses it, which I think is beautiful. Was it this or was it all a dream? You know, yeah, I, again, talking about how different it is in our era where we have all these things that we can mark and reference and document. It's just, you know, time was simply occurred and vanished and was lost. And you had to look back, you know, what you saw, how do you remember it? And are you remembering it or did you dream yeah. it? So it is a beautiful, beautiful way of describing it. And then he talks about Penelope and he says, a warm, generous wife, self-possessed Penelope, ever keen for her husband. But tell me your own story. Who are you? Where are you from? Your city, your parents. And Odysseus goes on to, you know, go ahead with a, this lie, <laughs> you know. Um, and uh, it just goes on and on, which I, I, I think is kind of ridiculous, you know. But then finally he says, uh, you know, when uh, Odysseus talks about all the troubles Odysseus had and everything. And at those words, a black cloud of grief came shrouding over Laertes, both hands clawing the ground for dirt and grime. He poured it over his grizzled head, sobbing and spasms. Odysseus' heart shuddered. 
A sudden twinge went shooting up. He sprang toward his father, kissed him, hugged him, crying, Father, I'm your son. Myself, the man you were seeking, home after 20 years, on native ground at last. Hold back your tears, your grief. Let me tell you the news. But, but I've cut the suitors down in our own house. I paid them back their, for their outrage, vicious crimes. Odysseus, Laertes catching his breath, found words to answer. You, you're truly my son, Odysseus, home at last? Give me a sign, some proof. So again, just like Penelope needed proof that Odysseus was Odysseus, his father needs proof that he is Odysseus. And then he mentions the scar that was caused by the uh, boar's tusk when he was young, on Mount Parnassus, you know. Um, so Odysseus convinces him that he is, is, convinces his father that he is indeed his son. And with the living proof, Laertes' knees went slack. His heart surrendered, recognizing the strong, clear signs Odysseus offered. He threw his arms around his own dear son, fainting. So anyhow, Odysseus mm-hmm. just tells him there's nothing to fear. I'm, I'm home at last, and so on. So it just sort of goes on like that um, to father and son, you know, reunites. Um, and it basically, it has a lot of filler, you know, until you that's get to it, the That's end. absolutely what it felt like. It's just this yeah. add-on and, and not as worthy of the epic as everything else that we've encountered, all the other chapters. Right. And so it, it ends, Laertes called out in deep delight, what a day for me, dear gods, what joy, my son and my grandson vine over courage. Laertes, goddess Athena, rushed beside him. So in other words, Athena, the patron goddess of Odysseus, is talking to Laertes. Her eyes ablaze, son of Arcesius, dearest of all my comrades, say a prayer to the bright-eyed girl and father Zeus. Athena breathed enormous strength into the old man. He lifted her prayer to mighty Zeus's daughter, brandishing his spear a moment, and so on. Um, and then there's a, uh, oh, uh, I forgot to mention, uh, another aspect of the chapter is that the uh, family of the uh, suitors that were killed, some of them uh, want to seek out Odysseus and kill him. And so right. they come to the farm, you know, to uh, kill Odysseus and so on. And Odysseus and Telemachus, um, uh, the, the leader was Eupithes, and uh, Odysseus, uh, you know, kills him. And he crashed his armor clanging against his chest. Odysseus and his gallant son, charged straight at the, at the front lines, you know, the suitors, slicing away with swords. Two-edged spears now, they would have killed them all if Athena, daughter of Stormy Zeus, had not cried out. In a piercing voice that stopped all the fighters, cold, hold back, you men of Ithaca, back from brutal war. Shed no more blood, make peace at last. So Athena commanded. And so they, uh, they stopped fighting each other. Long and during great Odysseus gathered all his force, swooped like a soaring eagle, and so on. 
and blazed eyed Athena wheeled on Odysseus, crying, Royal son Laertes, Odysseus, master of exploits, hold back now. Call a halt to the great lover of war. Don't court the rage of Zeus who rules the world. War, by the way, is the god Ares, and the Romans called him. Sean? Sean? Hello? Oh, sorry, I got I got muted. Uh, what were you saying? You said uh, Ares in Rome was Mars. So yeah, God of War. Right. I say, don't court the rage of Zeus who rules the world. So Athena commanded, and uh, he, meaning Odysseus, obeyed her, glad at heart. Handed down her packs of peace between both sides for all the years to come, and a daughter of Zeus whose shield is storm and thunder. Yes, but the goddess still kept Mentor's build and voice. She had transferred herself into this character called Mentor for a while. Yes. And that's how it ends, and I don't think it ends on a, a great note like the previous chapter. No, not at all. But let's let's put this aside. Kind of like Godfather 3. Godfathers 1 and 2 were works of art, and Godfather 3 was kind of like, why did you do that? Um, so let's just talk about, let's, let's honor the Odyssey, and uh, just give me your feelings, Gary, about this work. Why is it special to you? Well, the Iliad is the greatest uh, book on war ever written, the most influential. Mm -hmm. And um, and basically what's interesting about it is it shows the futility of war because the Greeks do destroy Troy, but then uh, many of the Greeks, uh, Agamemnon and so on, are killed on their way home or killed when they get back home. You know, so it's sort of like there's no winners in this uh, terrible conflict. Uh, and just like the modern war raging today was, uh, you know, Putin's invasion of Ukraine and the terrible death and destruction going on every day there, you know. Mm -hmm. And you can see this in the Iliad throughout the uh, work. And... Um, it's emotional, it's masterful, the characters are iconic. Uh, Achilles, the greatest warrior, Agamemnon, the high king of the Greeks, Menelaus, the wife and king of Sparta, the, the husband of uh, Helen, who becomes Helen of Troy, you know, iconic characters. Right. Um, and uh, I, I just think it's a wonderful piece to read. And uh, and I think everyone should read it, you know, and uh, understand how great it is. And just like the Odyssey, to me, the Odyssey is the greatest story, action-adventure story ever written, the most influential. And just like today, I was on my way over to the market, and I was falling behind a Honda Odyssey car. You know? Exactly. So, uh, that name yeah. has gone on. Mm -hmm. Now, the Odyssey with all its gods and monsters and everything. And, and by the way, there's 12 stops that Odysseus uh, does on his way home from Troy, 12 being a sacred number again. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's just a wonderful story about uh, Odysseus has to get back to his beautiful wife and Queen Penelope. And I think it's the greatest story of, of love ever written, you know? I am... Um... Thank you, thank you for sharing that. I would, uh, I would agree in the sense that these are the two most influential works. I mean, lots can be argued. So much has been written over the course of human history. 
there are different works that are resonate or are thought of as more or less powerful to different people. But certainly for Western literature, these two works are the templates. What I find interesting, what I've always thought about, is that in terms of Hollywood, I think Hollywood skips over the Odyssey and indulges in the Iliad. And what I mean by that is Hollywood forgets its goddesses often. In the early days, there were screen goddesses, but yeah. it removes the, the, the power of the, of the feminine. And by feminine, I don't simply mean, I don't at all mean weak or passive. In fact, I mean strong, I mean aggressive. I mean, those power of the feminine. That's often removed, the love element. It's the buddy story of Achilles and Patroclus is what Hollywood is about. The journey of the love of the of the the person taking this odyssey from which we get the name, uh, and the experience of enduring the forces that are beyond this world, another aspect of things that are often forgotten in modern Hollywood, the fact that there could be, or for some of us like me, believe there are things greater than us on this world. So I think. It would be lovely if uh, Hollywood focused on that. I certainly am focusing that with what I write, but the, I see these two works as that template and the choice made in terms of Western literature, Western drama, Western creation, which path do you follow? And they determine the kinds of stories that you write. So they are incredibly influential. And the idea of not giving these to students to read is crazy to me. Yeah, simply should start there. It's, it's really terrible because these two book-length poems are the uh, oldest books of Western European civilization. There's nothing older, and yet they're incredibly sophisticated. I, it, they're amazing for the, and it just reminds us. I think sometimes historians and you and I have talked about this for some bizarre reason. Treat people in the past as if they were simpletons. This yeah. is insane. These are the people who produced the the structure of knowledge and reasoning that we use today. I'm sorry. I don't think there were simplest. There were things that we disagree with that they believed, but there are things that people living now that I disagree with. So yeah, the and fact uh, that Homer, they... Mm -hmm. Homer was a genius. There's just no doubt about it in my mind. I agree with you. Well, let's just end it on that note. So uh, for the end of the Odyssey and for guiding us through, let's give a very warm round of applause to the one, the only Dr. Gary Stickle. Thank you for guiding us, Gary. Thank you. The journey's been great. And thank you all for listening. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb, and this has been the 34 Circe Salon, the Parallax Channel. We have completed our Odyssey. We've gone through 24 chapters of the Odyssey. Uh, hope you've enjoyed it. It's been wonderful for us, and we will have more things for you very soon. So thank you all for listening, and God bless. <laughs>